We, as a community, are currently making our way through this year-long series on the Bible, something we began in January at the church that planted us, and that we're calling the Year of Biblical Literacy, although the Year of Biblical Literacy is a bit more like a collection of series designed to give us the tools and the resources and the thinking necessary to read the Bible and to read the Bible well. So we spent several weeks discussing what the Bible is and what the Bible isn't, um, what it is for and what it isn't for, and how we got it in the first place. We spent several weeks thereafter walking through the meta-narrative of Scripture, painting with broad strokes to sort of understand the story that is the Bible, and that is, after all, what we believe. The Bible is a story. We actually think that the Bible is a library of writings, both human and divine, that together tell a unified story which leads us to Jesus. So we've also set about the task of reading through the entirety of the biblical narrative as a community. And if you've joined us in that process, you are currently working your way through uh, the gnarly and detailed pages of Second Kings, I believe. Today, you would probably finish up. Yes, right? Anyone, is anyone reading with me? Second Kings ended today. Um, and then throughout the weeks, you're, or throughout the week, you're going to continue on getting into Isaiah. And there's an awesome video from our friends at the Bible Project in Portland on Isaiah 1 through 39. Uh, fantastic stuff. Tim Mackey, who's a part of the Bible Project, did part of his PhD on Isaiah, so awesome. Uh, if, you, if this is all news to you, don't be intimidated, please. You can absolutely right now jump right in where we're at. If you have time later on through the year, you can go back on your vacation or audio Bible, whatever it is you want to catch up with. Um, you can go back, listen to all the teachings on the podcast, go to iTunes and search for Van City Church, or you can visit vancity.church Bible, where you'll find the Bible reading plan, all the helpful videos from our friends at the Bible Project uh, to guide you along uh, through the process of reading along the scriptures. Make sense? Tracking with me so far? Great. Um, what we're up to this evening is a series called The Story of Israel. So two weeks ago, we talked about the way in which we read Israel's history books. When you're reading through 2 Kings, what the heck is this supposed to mean? What does it have to do with us? And our conclusion was that the Old Testament narrative, especially the Israeli history books, are not meant to be read as sort of moral short stories. Um, you know, you read a little anecdote and then there's a moral at the end. That's nice. You put it on the flannel graph for the kids or whatever it might be. Um, but rather, we're reading the Old Testament narrative in search of parallels. How does this interact with our stories in the here and now? In one sense, the Old Testament was not written to us, but it was written in another sense for us. And what I mean by that is Israel's story is like our story, and it's a story marked by recurring failure. There are, sadly, no heroes in the Old Testament apart from God. Even the most noble characters are marked by episodes of moral collapse, either subtly so or outright horrific in nature. So tonight, I thought it would be fun to take a single, fun, that's a funny word, uh, I thought it would be interesting to take a single character who exemplifies failure well, and I want to read part of his story in search of a parallel for you and me. We're going to talk about tragedy, um, we're going to talk about violence, specifically against women and children, and we're going to talk about identity, because I want us, before we leave this evening, to consider the things we believe about ourselves, and if those things have become incongruent with what God says about us. So we'll talk, we're going to pray over one another before we go to the tables. A bit of forewarning, this is a sometimes heady, tragic stuff, but we're en route to a redemptive finale, so stay with me. We're, we're, we're on the way. We're getting there. You with me? 
so far? All right. Well, you have to say yes now. Or, I mean, I guess you could shake your head. It would just be weird. Um, <clears throat> now, a bit of background before we get into the story proper. If you're reading through the narrative of the Old Testament, you find that after the time of the judges, long story, um, Israel, the people with whom God has chosen to begin his kingdom project over again to redeem a broken world, Israel looks to the nations around them and they take note of uh, one particular discrepancy between these various peoples and themselves. Unlike the nations of the world, Israel has no king at all, and now they want one. You know, my kid does this all the time. He's like, the ankylosaurus is uh, presumably the farthest thing from his mind, but now his cousin is holding it, so he wants to hold it. It's like, he needs it right now. He needs it. And you're like, oh, do you want the other ankylosaurus? There's two of them. You want, you want a green one? or that? No, he needs the one that his cousin is holding. He wants it now. So these nations are looking around. They're being like, everyone else has got a king. How come we don't have a king? We want a king. We want to be like the other nations. Up until this point in the story, why has Israel gone without an appointed human king? God's their king. Thanks, man. I can count on you. Now every time I ask any kind of non-rhetorical question, I'm right there. God's their king. So even so, here in the story, Israel waves this dismissive hand at God, and they're like, nah, we want a human king like all these other homies. And God is like, well, uh, you know, if you can select some chump from your own ranks to rule uh, instead of me, if that's the way that you want to go about it, I think it's a bad idea. You know, oh, the human story in a nutshell. So... God thinks the whole human king thing is, is a bad idea. He warns them that if they do choose to make someone else king, that king's going to tax them. He's going to carry their children off into service and a whole host of other unsavory inevitabilities. But if you remember from last week, God is responsive and God is collaborative. So um, he grants Israel their foolish demand for a human king, though this is in no uncertain terms the very rejection of God as their king. And this is where the story of Saul begins. <clears throat> Before we read the bit of narrative from which we'll, we'll draw most of the evening's implications, let's do a bit of work fleshing out something of a background for Saul really quickly, beginning in 1 Samuel 9 with the very first verse. There was a Benjamite, a man of standing, whose name was Kish, son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Becherath, the son of Aphia of Benjamin. Kish had a son named Saul as handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel. And, get this, he was a head taller than anyone else. So we learn from the outset that Saul descends from a man of standing, and get this, this man is taller and more handsome than any dude in Israel. Remind you of anyone? <laughs> I thought that was funny. I was like, oh, there's an easy joke here. Is Who's tall and handsome? Well, Cameron's pretty tall and handsome. So, <laughs> in fact, Saul's name means the one asked for. Saul is, if you read the story in full, in many ways, he's kind of this ordinary, imperfect fellow, and yet God selects and equips Saul to be king of Israel. This Saul, this imperfect but very handsome, very tall Saul, is made king over Israel, the very first king. So skip over to chapter 10, then look at verse 9. As Saul turned to leave Samuel, who's a prophet, God changed Saul's heart, and all these signs were fulfilled that day. When he and his servant arrived at Gibeah, a procession of prophets met him. The Spirit of God came powerfully upon Saul, and he joined them in their prophesying. 
So you're reading the story and you're like, hey, great start. Saul is depicted as uh, something of uh, a pliant heart. He's being empowered by God, uh, one apt to respond to God's direction. God's generous equipping of all Saul requires for kingship is not lost on Saul. He's into it. He likes it. He likes this idea of being responsive and joining in the prophesying. Things are going great. The Spirit of God is on him powerfully. At that, this sounds like the dude is working out quite nicely. Hooray. You know, go Israel. Things are looking up. Um, story goes on, and in the chapter that follows, Saul gets right to work as the guy that Israel asked for. He puts an end to the uh, brutality of this group of people called the Ammonites, acting as a protector on behalf of the oppressed. So this cat Saul, tall, handsome, uh, filled with the spirit, wrecking shop on the bad guys, leading the people, vanquishing Israel's enemies, looking good while he does it. Things are on the up and up. For Israel, way to go. First king, not so bad after all. They're like, hey, see, we told you, God. Um, but then turn over to chapter 13 from 1 Samuel, and let's see the first indication of Saul's decline. In the story, Saul is uh, poised to go to battle with Israel's greatest enemy, the Philistines. These, and these guys are no joke. The text makes a point of detailing their impressive military might. Tens of thousands of chariots and horsemen up against Israel's dinky, untrained army. So it stands to reason that the Israelites might be a tad apprehensive about butting heads with the Philistines, and the text even discloses that some of them go out in search of hiding places. They're like, yeah, we'll be right back, and, uh, or they make a run for it rather than sticking around to get greased by the Philistines. So in the story, this prophet named Samuel, he lends very specific instruction for Saul, wait seven days, sounds weird, but wait seven days, then Samuel's going to show up. They're going to offer a sacrifice, and this seemingly impossible victory would, at that point, be Israel's. Let's see what happens. 1 Samuel 13, beginning in verse 8. He, Saul, waited seven days, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived, and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, When I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. So in the story, Saul does the thing. He waits the seven days, asks per Samuel's to-the-point instruction. But when Saul doesn't see Samuel the moment that wait time has been expended, his men panic and Saul follows suit. Many of us logically-minded folk, myself, uh, read me, would think that this is an entirely practical thing to do. Hey, the time is up. He said he was going to be here at this time. That means we could go forward with the alternate plan. But remember, throughout the Old Testament narrative, Yahweh is looking for the type of faithfulness that trusts even in the face of impossible odds or even in sort of nonsense circumstances. So Saul panics. He offers the sacrifice himself. He breaks the fundamental rule of God's theocratic setup for Israel, which was the king reluctantly appointed by Yahweh, must at all times trust and obey the words of God's prophet, and thus the authority of the, of the one on whose behalf the prophet speaks. Yahweh, the true king, 
of Israel. This isn't a, a legal transaction type of thing, but this is a relational dynamic that God is after. So what may seem like a sort of small misstep in context has dire implications when we consider how Saul went about confronting it. Uh, if you read in the text, Saul is obstinate. He blame shifts. He's like, oh, the men scattered, or you didn't come on time, or the Philistines were encroaching. And then he sort of spiritualizes the situation. But look at this sacrifice that I made. I knew that I needed to get in good with God. It was because of God that I had to do this thing. And he refuses to acknowledge his misstep. And certainly, a great many characters throughout the Old Testament are depicted as failing, but how they react to and address their own mistakes reveals their readiness or their, or their lack thereof to align themselves with the way of God. So the prophet delivers a bummer. Saul's rule is not going to last after all. Someone else is going to supersede him. It's someone else that has a, a life that is a pursuit of the very heart of God. The story goes on, and in spite of Saul's panicked misstep, Israel still manages to defeat the Philistines, and even with that victory behind them, Saul's life continues in tragic decline. So turn one more time, 1 Samuel 15. Let's jump ahead a bit in the story. <clears throat> now, this part's fun. Before we get into this text, we need to address an elephant that I'm about to put in the room with just a few lines. Um, this story depicts God's judgment of an evil, tyrannical, oppressive people called the Amalekites. So let's read just one verse alone and watch everyone squirm around in their chairs. First uh, Samuel 15, verse 3. Now go, attack the Amalekites, and totally destroy all that belong to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. Now, <laughs> this uh, attention-grabbing verse, for want of a better way to describe it, isn't at all meant to be our focus for the evening, but you know as well as I do that having just read it, we've rung a bell that can't be unrung. Um, and, you know, I, before we carry on with Saul, while we're working through the story of Israel, I figured this is as good a time as any to uh, uh, do some work on what this verse actually means so that we don't lose our entire audience before we can get to the conclusion. So I suspect that the majority of you guys, if, if not every one of you guys and gals, are at least partly troubled by a text like 1 Samuel 15, 3. If you're anything like I was, you're terribly troubled by it. A plain reading of a text like this one, if, if we're completely honest, does nothing short of putting God's goodness into question. So many of us hope it does not mean what it seems to clearly say, and yet we lack the means of unlocking what we hope is some other intended purpose behind it. So I'm going to suggest to you that no, at least to a certain degree, the text is not saying what some of you are afraid it's saying. So a few weeks ago, we had a gentleman um, from Imago Day Church out in Portland come to Bridgetown Church to do this hour-long lecture on passages like this one. You can find it on the Van City podcast as well, so please go back and give it a listen. He does more than an hour on this particular topic, but for our purposes tonight, let's just do some quick work in building a brief bit of context to help us understand what's going on here. This passage in 1 Samuel 15 um, together with the battle against the Canaanites and Joshua, are two favorite verses for critics of the Bible because from a surface sort of reading, they seem to implicate Yahweh in, at the very best, holy war, and at worst, genocide. You know, in, uh, in modern thinking, 
Holy war is the strong using their God or their gods to justify their conquest of the weak. But the Old Testament depicts something very different. Israel, on whose behalf Yahweh fights, is not an ancient powerhouse and certainly not an empire by any stretch of the imagination. They are the last and least of all the ancient kingdoms. They are known historically for their enslavement and thus their weakness. They're always outmanned, always outgunned, uh, unlike their neighboring kingdoms. And unlike the sophisticated armories of their enemies, Israel has no weapons or advanced technology to speak of. Uh, no, spot, you know, no stockpiles of AK-47s were waiting for them when they got out into the desert from Egypt. Um, this is kind of a sticks and stones against tanks and drones. Hmm. Yeah, I didn't like the way it sounded when I said it out loud. <clears throat> you get the idea, even if it doesn't rhyme. That's the idea, sticks and stones versus more sophisticated weaponry that may or may not rhyme. Israel's enemies have these fortified military strongholds while Israel totes around a wooden box that is said to kind of uh, have God's presence inside. Israel's enemies possess a wealth of conquest expertise. They have uh, refined military strategy while Israel's is untrained and without formal strategy of any kind. Israel's enemies have armor, high-tech metals, and defenses that's often detailed throughout the text, while Israel is depicted in whatever ratty clothes they made it through the desert in, I guess, you know. In Israel's battle narratives, they are inexperienced civilians storming Fort Knox with water pistols, essentially. They are like ants marching against elephants, and their strategies are hilarious if you read the stories. It's one thing to be outnumbered and awesome, you know, like Leonidas is 300 or something like that. Yeah, they're outnumbered, but man, look at those abs. But it's, <clears throat> it's, it's quite another thing to be outnumbered and ridiculous. In, in one famous story, Israel faces this heavily fortified military outpost of Jericho, and the strategy is to pit a nation of slaves against a fortress, have them take a walk around the city playing trumpets. So imagine like storming the beaches of Normandy with kazoos, you know. I don't know what they'd be playing. That's apparently the Muppet Show theme. Um, when we read stories of Israel's uh, warfare narratives, they often sound to us, or maybe it's just me, but they sound like savage conquest narratives or, you know, in which a bloodthirsty nation puts entire peoples to the sword for the sake of victory or for the sake of land. But in the context of the Old Testament narrative, what we actually find is God arising on behalf of the weak against the tyranny of the strong. And yes, God uses Israel to judge other nations, but often enduring the evil of other nations for centuries. When faced with the ongoing oppression of evil empires, God will patiently seek redemption for years, hundreds of years. But if that nation rejects God's redemption over and over and over again, God will judge them. And we hear all that and we're like, or if you're like me, you're like, okay, well, that kind of makes sense. That helps a little, I guess. But to kill men and women and children and animals doesn't just seem like judgment. It seems like cruelty. Um, is, is that what God is actually commanding in this text? I think a few more pieces of specific context will alleviate much of our very understandable concern. The first thing to understand about the two specific warfare uh, narratives of the Old Testament against, or in 1 Samuel and then in Joshua, is that when we read about cities in the Old Testament war narratives, 
scholars and archaeologists agree that we are not reading about civilian population centers, but of small, fortified military outposts used to defend the roads that lead up to the villages where the people actually are. Jericho, for example, is uniformly understood by archaeologists to have been a military settlement, probably of about a hundred or fewer soldiers. And the next piece of context, uh, perhaps the most comforting, at least was for me, is that phrases like put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep and camels and donkeys are Hebrew stock phrases that indicate totality. So think of a term like heaven and earth that gets repeated throughout the Old Testament. Is this always meant to specifically indicate the sky and the land, or is it often used to just describe everything in existence? Often without any sort of focus on the sky or the land at all. The idea with this hyperbolic expression is not specificity, but that whatever stands against Israel inside this military outpost will be defeated. In fact, uh, ancient Hebrew readers would have assumed that this did not include women and children because civilians don't typically occupy military outposts. And if they did, they don't usually stick around when a battle is encroaching on them. In fact, and get this, the only women and children specifically mentioned in one of the two kill all the women and children passages in the Old Testament is someone called Rahab and her family, and she gets rescued, not killed. This is what Joshua Ryan Butler likes to call ancient trash talk. Um, I don't keep up with sports personally, but I'm told that if you were to speak with some team who had just won a game, you might hear things like, oh, we destroyed them, uh, they couldn't get anything past us, we wiped the floor with them. Um, and of course, this isn't typically true in the literal sense, right, Cam? I mean, if it was, would it be more entertaining for me? <laughs> it's not true in the literal sense, and yet no one accuses the team of lying. We simply understand that they're speaking with recognized idioms. Christopher Wright puts it this way, we must also recognize that the language of warfare had a conventional, re conventional rhetoric that liked to make absolute and universal claims about total victory and completely wiping out the enemy. Such rhetoric often exceeded reality on the ground. This is not to accuse the biblical writers of falsehood, but to recognize the literary conventions of writing about warfare. Now, since the text we're reading tonight is one of only two in the Old Testament to include this horrible, you know, kill all the women and the infants talk, I want to reinforce this last point because I'm sure some of you guys, stands to reason, could be thinking, yeah, that sounds nice, but it sounds like you're doing all this work to try to get around what the Bible is clearly saying. If anyone ever says the Bible clearly says, well, red flag. Um, <clears throat> I don't know about you guys, but it's often not quite clear. So I submit to you that the text cannot mean what it appears to mean from a simple reading. And here's why. In verse 3, God tells Saul, kill all the Amalekites, you know, including the women and the children and the babies and the donkeys for some reason. And the text goes on to say that, that Saul did. It says he killed, quote, all the people, except for that he spares this guy named Agag, and then he, like, kind of chooses from the livestock who he wants to keep. Uh, all that was good, the, the choice calves and lambs, and he would not utterly destroy them. Now notice... Saul is said to only have spared the king and some choice animals, but that he did not spare any other Amalekites. And as we're about to see when we finally get back to the text, Saul gets rebuked after the battle, and it isn't because he left any people alive, it's because he pounced on the spoiler, because he kind of looted the uh, stuff that they had lying around. So 
it would seem from the text that Saul did kill the women, the children, the babies. But when you keep reading in 1 Samuel, you find plenty of Amalekites still running around. In fact, by the time you get to chapter 27, David sets out to kill all the Amalekites. And you're like, again? Didn't, didn't we just do this? And it says again, leaving neither man nor woman alive. And even that annihilation, it gets called, can't be literal because he continues to battle with the Amalekites in the next chapter and then in chapter 30. And after all that, an Amalekite shows up in 2 Samuel <laughs> claiming to have killed Saul. So despite the notable handicap of being annihilated a handful of times, the men and women and children, uh, they seem to have a knack for not being annihilated. You know, <clears throat> Preston Sprinkle puts it like this, and I love this quote. The point is that the phrase man and woman, child and infant is used as a rhythmic description of total defeat and is not meant to include every breathing Amalekite baby. It can't. The text doesn't allow this. Please note, it's not my human sentiment that demands this, but the rest of 1 Samuel. So the image here is of Israel as radically outnumbered, outgunned, underdog, going against this military outpost of the evil oppressor without benefit of appropriate weapons or armor so that God will be held responsible for pronouncing judgment on the evil and the oppressive Amalekites. They aren't slaughtering civilians or doing holy war conquests, not by a long shot. And we should also remember here that God is working in and with a violent culture. He's pulling them toward a better way in the future. None of the violence in these stories in the Old Testament is prescriptive, meaning you should do this. If we did, it would be kind of wacky and probably wouldn't work all that well. Um, it's all descriptive. These are things that happened. They happened 3,000 years ago with God working really interestingly and dynamically with one particular culture at one time in the world at one specific place. What we, as followers of Jesus, find prescriptively is to love our enemies, to turn the other cheek, to bless rather than curse, and to never repay evil for evil. Now, with all that in mind, let's see what happens to Saul. You guys still with me after all that? I could have just read that and then we could have kept going and everyone would have been looking at each other like, well, did you, did you see that? Um, <clears throat> let's uh, pick up the story again, back with verse 3, now that we have a, a bit more context. Now go, attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. So Saul summoned the men and mustered them at Telaim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 from Judah. Saul went to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the ravine. Then he said to the Kenites, go away, leave the Amalekites so that I do not destroy you along with them. For you showed kindness to all the Israelites when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites moved away from the Amalekites. Then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur near the eastern border of Egypt. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive and all his people he totally destroyed with the sword, even though they show up again later. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king. That's interesting. God experiences regret. Because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was angry, and he cried out to the Lord all that night. Early in the morning, Samuel got up, went to meet Saul, but he was told, Saul has gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honor, 
and has turned, gone, and turned and gone down to Gilgal. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, Lord bless you, I have carried out the Lord's instructions. But Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? <laughs> what is this lowing of cattle I hear? I love the you know, depiction of sarcasm in the Old Testament. Saul answered, the soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but we totally destroyed the rest. Enough, Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. That's never a good thing to hear. So Saul's like, tell me. Samuel said, although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and he sent you on a mission saying, go, completely destroy those wicked people. The Amalekites wage war against them until you've wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I, I completely destroyed the Amalekites. I brought back Agag, their king. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid of the men, and so I gave in to them. Now I beg you, forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to him, I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. <clears throat> now, in the story, Saul is charged with disobedience after plundering the Amalekites for some choice spoils, you know. Who doesn't like choice spoils? The point is that he's taking the good stuff for himself. And what we see in the narrative has less to do with semantics over rule-breaking and everything to do with this concept of trust and obedience because God is after Saul's faithfulness. His story is like our story. What God wants is faithfulness. And we talked last week about the way that uh, marriage is our best available metaphor for the type of covenant faithfulness that God is after. Throughout Israel's history, we've, we often find characters who will leverage a pledge to make sacrifice against revealed disobedience as if to say, yeah, I screwed up, but this sacrifice I'll make will be incredible. And sacrifices, you know, they, they were indeed required of Israel, but the point is that a sacrifice does not cover over disobedience. Confession and repentance and seeking God's cleansing do that. So the idea is like a man or a woman that cheats on their spouse and then offers to redeem such a catastrophic breach of trust by buying them a present. We often work uh, the same way, I suspect, or at least I know that I do. I pit my obedience against my disobedience to sort of curry God's favor. Yeah, I, I screwed up, but think of everything that I did this week. Or, or alternately, God, I've done so much for you as of late. Why isn't everything lining up? me right now, tit for tat. No healthy marriage functions this way. In the story, when Saul gets confronted with the inescapable reality of his disobedience, after arguing, after blame shifting, after spiritualizing, he finally says in verse 24, okay, you got me. I have sinned. I violated the Lord's command in your instructions. And then he says, I was afraid of the men, and so I gave in to them. And it's incredible when you consider Saul's story up until now, 
God had given Saul this powerful identity as Israel's first anointed king. He was filled with God's spirit, powerfully so. He prophesied. And yet, in this moment, Saul allows himself to be defined by fear. Saul seems to interpret who he is as a servant to be punished rather than beloved son to be empowered and to be healed. The things that we're afraid of possess a certain measure of power over us, even power to define us if we so let them. And if we were to continue reading through Saul's life, we'd see that from here on out, Saul not only falls victim to this false identity, but he embraces it like an anchor, plummeting downward into madness and despair. Saul fails miserably in his instructed purpose against the Amalekites, and he seems to allow that failure to define him as he moves forward. The man here in the story selected to eventually replace Saul is this guy named David. Maybe you've heard of him. Um, and Saul becomes consumed with fear of and hatred for David. He tries to kill him several times in some of the weirdest, goofiest stories in the Bible. And after eventually failing once again to contain Israel's enemies, Saul concludes his own tragic story in suicide. It all sounds terribly melodramatic, like something we can't relate to. I've never been responsible for an army and then killed myself. But how many of us uh, can relate? How many of us have read with clarity in the Scriptures what God has declared to be true about those of us who follow Jesus, or even heard the Spirit of God speak clearly and powerfully over us, and yet we settle for other titles or other identities that are not only from someone or something other than God, but they run completely contrary to that which God has said to be true about us. How often do we, or do I, readily, even hungrily, give in to a lie someone else has spoken over us and allow that lie to seep into our consciousness in a satanic attempt to purge every bit of truth God has to say about who we are from the core of our being. Saul's story is like our story. And tonight, we're going to take some time to alter the trajectory that many of us uh, have been on or are on you know, it stands to reason that many of you guys tonight have, have known failure in your life or, or you've known failure even quite recently. Perhaps many of you even accepted the moniker of failure like some kind of awful brand on your forehead or something like it. And I'm not here to tell you that you haven't failed. You know, chances are that you have or perhaps you will soon. You do fail but you aren't a failure. When we do fail, the trick is to carry the painful weight of that failure to the open hands of a loving father without fear of being struck or condemned, but in the knowledge that we can be forgiven, that we can be healed, that God the Father can reinforce our true identity again and again, and that we need not embrace a false identity that will sweep us up in a current toward destruction. You know, often, in, frankly, in the humility of failure, we hear God's voice most clearly, and we can ask to be reminded of what He says about us, what He says about us, not our friends or our families or our coworkers or the internet or even failure itself, but what does the God of the universe say about us? 
And in that moment, we can evaluate the choice before us. Which identity will we choose? Um, Will we continue on in the defeat of our false identity, or will we turn in another direction? You know, Saul confesses, sure, but he doesn't change direction if you continue reading his story. He continues on into oblivion. It's not enough to recognize a lie. A lie is to be rejected. And I've already told you guys a bit, if you've been around at all for any length of time, I talk about it all the time, uh, about this kind of uh, dark spell that I'd, be, I'd been wandering through in the winter. And there have been several means through which I've sought out, you know, emotional and mental health, uh, prayer and therapy, conversations with mentors and with my missional community. But there was a, a particularly significant turning point in my struggle with anxiety and with self-hatred that occurred over the course of just about an hour or so at my friend's home. Uh, this gentleman named Gary, Gary Brashears, he's the, the head of the theology department over at Western Seminary. He's one of my professors, but he's also a mentor and a friend of mine. And when I told him a bit about this rough patch that I'd found myself wandering around in, he said, okay, you and Abby come over and we'll pray. And uh, I told Gary about my great struggle and accepting the identity that God has given me in the face of my own shortcomings and my own failure, though I've followed Jesus for years and years and I've, I've studied the scriptures from cover to cover, and and though I intellectually believe it to the core of my being, it often seems, I said to Gary, too good to be true. And Gary said, yeah, absolutely. It is absolutely too good to be true, and yet somehow it is. And as, you know, Abby and Gary both prayed over me and with me that evening, the, the Spirit spoke clearly and profoundly in ways that I will honestly not forget for as long as I live. And and through Abby and through Gary and as a direct deposit into my own mind, the Spirit spoke. Yes, I do fail, but God has not named me failure. And yes, I am in so many ways inclined to that which is contrary to the way of Jesus. And yet, God, my Father, reminds me that that is not who I am. I am God's son. And I know because God the Father told me so. And it's funny because he reminded me knowing full well of how much I love my own son. Um, And he was the picture that came to mind, you know, in spite of his many shortcomings in obedience. And if you see him in a little while running around, you'll see him for yourself. You'll see the shortcomings on disobedience for yourself. Um, and do I want my son to, to trust and to obey me for his own sake and for my own convenience? Yes, of course. Um, are there often consequences for, for distrust and disobedience? Of course, certainly there are. But the identity that I know him by is not failure. I do not call him disobedient. He is my son. And for all our endless flailing about to curry God's favor and curry God's love, he has already spoken definitively over us that follow Jesus. Over all of us, over the entire world, of course what we do matters. Of course our obedience or lack thereof matters, but who we are is steady and it's fixed to us as my son's family name is fixed to him. And with it, unending unstoppable love. And I am one small 
terribly imperfect person. How much more the Father loves His children. So tonight, whether you're wrestling through failure or not, whether your identity is something that's steady or whether it's been misplaced, I think that the reminder is to remember who you are. If you feel numb, trudging along, remember who you are. You know, a, a lack of tragedy or pain or some difficult spell in your life isn't necessarily indicative of a known identity. Often, there's no sense of life without anything to contrast it with. And rather than simply saying all these things and moving on, I want to make space uh, tonight to allow the Spirit to speak over us.